August 29th, 2001. Mohammed Atta picks up the phone and dials the number in Hamburg, Germany. Because of the six-hour time difference with the East Coast and the United States, the call comes in at around 2.30 a.m. Hamburg time. On the other end of the phone is Ramzi bin al-Sheib, a Yemeni who has been providing logistical support for the 9-11 hijackers in the United States. When bin al-Sheib picked up the call, Atta never identified himself. He spoke in his native Egyptian dialect, which bin al-Sheib recognized. A friend of mine has given me a riddle that I am unable to solve, and I want you to help me out, Atta said. Is this really the right time for riddles? bin al-Sheib asked him. Yes, I know, but you are my friend, and no one else but you can help me solve it, Atta responded. Okay, go ahead then. Two sticks, a dash, and a cake with a stick down. What is it? Atta asked. Did you really wake me up to tell me this riddle? Bin al-Sheib asked him. He figured it out moments later, though. Sounds like a sweet riddle. Let your friend know he has nothing to worry about. Setting the coded language aside, this was a hugely significant phone call. Mohammed Atta, the lead 9-11 hijacker, was telling one of his accomplices the date of the attacks so that he could travel and pass this information to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Osama bin Laden personally. Bin al-Sheib is the first person outside of the hijackers to know the date for the attacks. Bin al-Sheib would later recount this conversation during an interview with Al Jazeera journalist Yosri al-Fawda. Quote, Two sticks is the number 11, a dash is a dash, and a cake with a stick down is the number 9. And that was the zero hour, 9-11. The date for the riddle was given in the day-month format that most of the world uses, 11 September or 11-9, as opposed to the month-day format that is used mainly in the United States. Bin al-Sheib had less than two weeks to wrap up loose ends and get everything ready for the attacks. I'm David Asola. This is the sixth episode of Zero Hour, a history of 9-11. Before continuing the story, it is necessary to ask a fundamental question. Who were these 19 men who would go on to perpetrate the worst act of terrorism in American history? That angle of the 9-11 story begins in Hamburg almost nine years before that late night phone call. A 24-year-old Egyptian named Mohammed Atta had moved to Hamburg, Germany to attend graduate school. He was the youngest of three children whose older sisters had excelled at academics at Cairo University and went on to become a cardiologist and a zoology professor. He was raised in a secular household, which makes his eventual radicalization somewhat puzzling. But Atta's father had a very good reason for steering the family away from religion, according to journalist Terry McDermott. At that time in, in Cairo, to be a religious person was to be a political person. And uh, this was like post-modernization, uh, and the, the religious people were the Muslim Brotherhood. Hosni Mubarak had been president of Egypt since shortly after the assassination of his predecessor, Anwar Sadat, in October of 1981. The biggest and pretty much only organized political opposition to Mubarak in those days was the Muslim Brotherhood. So the father wanted to steer clear of politics as much as humanly possible, and so kept the kids out of out of the mosque, uh, which is really, you know, to, 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 to not be religious in the Arab world is a really hard thing to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're, you're surrounded by it all the time. Before achieving worldwide infamy as the ringleader of the 9-11 hijackers, Mohammed Atta followed in his sister's footsteps and enrolled at Cairo University, where he graduated with a degree in architecture in 1990. 
According to Terry McDermott's book, Perfect Soldiers, because Atta's grades weren't good enough to be admitted to a graduate program at Cairo University, his father suggested he apply to programs abroad. The elder Atta had his son take English at the American University campus in Cairo, and later on take German classes at the Goethe Institute. In the meantime, Atta got a temporary job as a construction supervisor at two building projects in Cairo. Mohammed Atta arrived in the Hanseatic City in the summer of 1992, when much of the world's attention was focused on the Olympic Games in Barcelona and the American presidential election scheduled for the fall. Hamburg is the second largest city in Germany and is home to an estimated 200,000 Muslims. One of his former classmates described him as a normal student. Quote, Muhammad was there, sharing all our fun times. He liked it. He would tell jokes, laugh. He was one of us. Another one compared Atta's temperament to that of a child who would get angry when things didn't go his way. Atta enrolled in the City Engineering and Planning Program at the Technical University of Hamburg-Harburg, where he was registered as a student for the next seven years. He actually received his degree just before leaving for Afghanistan. According to the 9-11 Commission, quote, Atta came across as very intelligent and reasonably pleasant with an excellent command of the German language. However, his fellow Hamburg students recalled Atta expressing anti-Semitic and anti-American views. A college friend from Cairo who saw him when he visited Egypt in 1998 said that Atta had changed by this point, having grown a beard and, quote, obviously adopted fundamentalism. He did not take well to certain aspects of everyday life and social norms in Hamburg. He began attending services at several mosques throughout the city. The most relevant one to this story is the Al-Quds Mosque, located in the St. Georg district. It was a hotbed for radical Islamist sentiment at the time. Atta taught religion at Al-Quds and another mosque, where he developed a reputation as a strict disciplinarian who was not a very popular teacher. One former student began referring to him as the Ayatollah, a reference to the Shia religious title given to the spiritual leader of Iran. It was through this volunteer work at a mosque that Atta at some point in 1995 met and became friends with another teacher, a Yemeni named Ramzi bin al-Sheib. According to the 9-11 Commission, quote, the two men became close friends and became identified with a shared extremist outlook. It was through the Al-Quds Mosque that Bin al-Sheib met a Lebanese student named Zia Jara two years later. According to a Department of Defense document, Bin al-Sheib was born in Yemen on May 1, 1972. He became interested in religion at around the age of 12. He grew up in relative poverty, especially after the death of his father in 1987. Though raised by his older brother, he often had to fend for himself, working as a messenger boy for the International Bank of Yemen in the capital city of Sana'a between 1987 and 1995. In 1994, the Department of Defense alleges that he fought for two months on behalf of the government during his home country's civil war. In 1995, Bin al-Sheib unsuccessfully applied for a U.S. visa, according to Terry McDermott. His lifelong ambition was, quote, to go to the United States and study computers, to emulate what several colleagues at the bank had done. At that point, he made his way to Germany in August of the same year by way of the United Arab Emirates and Cairo. He told his family that he was going there to study economics and politics. Upon arriving in Germany, he turned himself in to immigration authorities in Hamburg with a note reading, quote, Dear Sirs, with this application, I ask you for political asylum. 
Yours sincerely, Ramzi Omar. In addition to the false alias, Ben Al-Sheib made up a story about being a university student from Sudan fleeing persecution, having stowed away aboard a Sudanese ship. He claimed to have been arrested for taking part in an anti-government demonstration, and that the government broke into his apartment and stole his identity papers. Authorities accepted his application and put him on a waitlist for a court hearing. In the meantime, he was given temporary shelter in refugee camps specifically for asylum seekers. Germany was a very appealing option for would-be asylum seekers at this time. According to McDermott, during the 90s, quote, Germany received on average more than 100,000 asylum seekers a year, fewer than a tenth of whom were able to demonstrate sufficient proof to the German government they were fleeing anything. The appeal of getting asylum status was Germany's generous welfare system for health care and housing. It also came with a visa valid for the entire continent. McDermott noted, quote, Asylum, if approved, was a virtual ticket to a new life. During the next two years, he lived under the alias Omar al-Yemeni while he waited for the outcome of his asylum petition. Ben al-Shiv's petition was eventually denied, with the judge correctly doubting whether he was even Sudanese. He applied for admission to several colleges and was accepted at one. He only went to a few classes, though. According to McDermott, quote, his real intent seemed to be to secure documentation that would allow him to be granted a student visa. He went back to Yemen in 1997 and successfully applied for a student visa under his real name through the German embassy in Sana'a. He returned to Germany, though he didn't appear to have much interest in his studies and was expelled from one school in September of 1998. That same year, Atad bin Al-Shi began sharing an apartment with another student, an Emirati named Marwan Al-Shehi. Marwan al-Shehi was born May 9, 1978 in the United Arab Emirates. His father, who died in 1997, was a prayer leader at their local mosque. Marwan graduated from high school in 1985, subsequently enlisted in the Emirati military. He received six months of basic training before gaining admission to a military scholarship program which financed his studies in Germany. He arrived in Bonn, the capital of what had been West Germany, in April 1996. According to the 9-11 Commission, friends from this period described him as, quote, a regular guy who wore Western clothes and rented cars for occasional trips to Berlin, France, and the Netherlands. He enrolled at the University of Bonn, where he was not a very good student. He was very religious to begin with, praying five times a day. Over time, his views became even more extreme. The 9-11 Commission notes that, quote, in late 1997, he applied for permission to complete his coursework in Hamburg, a request apparently motivated by his desire to join Atta and Bin al-Sheib. It is not known how the three of them knew each other, but the relationship was already established by the time al-Shehi moved to Hamburg in January of 1998. Atta and Bin al-Sheib moved into al-Shehi's apartment in April. According to a CIA document, Atta and al-Shehi had a mutual acquaintance named Munir Mutasadek, a Moroccan living in Hamburg. He was later convicted of complicity in the 9-11 plot by German authorities. According to the 9-11 Commission, as Al-Shehi's lifestyle became more austere, he began wearing cheap clothes and had no television in his apartment. When asked about this, he said he wanted to emulate the way the Prophet Muhammad had lived. Someone else asked why Al-Shehi and Atta never laughed. Al-Shehi responded, quote, How can you laugh when people are dying in Palestine? 
The fourth and least probable member of the group that would come to be known as the Hamburg Cell was Zia Jarrah. He was born in Lebanon on May 11, 1975. Like Atta, he came from a secular upbringing. Zia Jarrah's family wasn't notably religious whatsoever. They were Beirutis, Lebanese, um, middle, middle class, upper middle class. They owned some property. Uh, the father was a bureaucrat. Uh, the mom came from a rich family. Uh, you know, Jarrah went to Catholic schools, which upper, you know, upper middle class Lebanese do. Uh, not because he was Catholic, because that's where he got the best education. His father, a civil servant who made a $21,000 a year salary, told the Wall Street Journal that Ziad had wanted to become a pilot since he was five years old, but that he would not allow it. Quote, I stopped him from being a pilot. I only have one son, and I was afraid that he would crash. In April of 1996, Jarrah and a cousin both enrolled at a junior college in Greifswald, a town in northeast Germany about 165 miles east of Hamburg. And he was not he was not political uh, until he got to Germany. I mean, he was kind of a party boy. Um, he liked to drink, you know, smoke marijuana. He had a giant bong in his uh, dormitory. Um, met a, a Turkish girl. According to the 9-11 Commission, while Jorah was there, he met and became intimate with Aysel Senguin, the daughter of Turkish immigrants who had plans to study dentistry. Though he shared an apartment with his cousin, he was, quote, mostly at Senguin's apartment. While he lived there, he had a reputation for drinking beer and going to parties and knowing where to find the best discos and beaches in Beirut. One of his closest university friends in Hamburg told the Wall Street Journal after 9-11, quote, he was very European-minded and open to the world. He was very open and talked about his personal problems. He thought America was great, and he wanted to continue his studies there. This hardly fits the profile of an Islamic extremist compared to someone like Marwan al-Shehi, but that is exactly what he was becoming. Witnesses interviewed in the aftermath of 9-11 said he started showing signs of radicalization by the end of 1996. He, I think, had the zeal of a convert, in a way. You know what I mean? He, he had he had come to it later than others. I mean, someone like like Al Shehi uh, was had a sort of a joyful acceptance of martyrdom. He he sang songs about it all the time. He talked about it. Uh, it, it was a, he smiled when he talked about it, which must have been odd as hell. Um, whereas Dra came to it from a different place, and you know, knowing the other world, Beirut people Beirutis are like Parisians or New Yorkers. They think they live in the center of the universe. Um, and they're, they have enormous pride about it, about their cosmopolitanism, about their acceptance of everything. Again, so it's, you know, it's a, that's the kind of city it is. And where it is, it's a crossroads for the world. So he, he, he did not come to this with a preset, a belief system. You know, I think he, it was all acquired. Mm -hmm. And then and then it was reinforced once he got to Hamburg. His girlfriend and his university friends weren't the only ones fooled by his double life. His father told the Wall Street Journal that Ziad skipped his sister's wedding in Lebanon in July of 2001 because he had to take a test and be set back six months if he did. His father also didn't know that he had been taking flying lessons in Florida at the time. In September of 1997, Having moved and enrolled at the Technical University of Hamburg, Harburg, Jorah changed his academic plans, switching from dentistry to aircraft engineering. 
He told his girlfriend that he had been interested in aviation since playing with toy planes as a child, which is somewhat consistent with his father's comments to the Wall Street Journal. He maintained a long-distance relationship with Senguen, visiting her at Greifswald on weekends until she moved to the city of Bochum a year later to enroll at dental school. Geographically, Bochum is located a few minutes west of Dortmund and about an hour from the Dutch-German border, but it was a farther trek from Hamburg than Greifswald, about 220 miles to the southwest. Quote, Around the same time, he began speaking increasingly about religion, and his visits to Sanguin became less and less frequent, the 9-11 Commission noted. Quote, he began criticizing her for not being religious enough and for dressing provocatively. He grew a full beard and started praying relatively. He refused to introduce her to his Hamburg friends because, he told her, they were religious Muslims, and her refusal to become more observant embarrassed him. In 1999, he told her he was planning to fight a jihad because there was no greater honor than to die for Allah. The couple had many arguments and breakups over his changes, which were, quote, invariably followed by reconciliation. Jorah didn't live with Atta, Al-Shehi, and Ben Al-Shib at the apartment at 54 Marienstrasse. He met Ben Al-Shib at the Al-Quds Mosque, which Jorah began attending in late 1997. The question at this point is who recruits these alienated young Muslim men to join Al-Qaeda? Here's Terry McDermott's explanation. You know, I spent at least a year trying to figure out who recruited these guys. And finally come to the realization that nobody recruited them. They're all volunteers. I mean, they just showed up. Uh, There was really no network in place to bring them to Afghanistan or anything else. These guys were, you know, all Arabs, all you know, the, the ones I know the best are the, the ones from Hamburg. And these guys all came from the Arab world somewhere. And they're, you know, they're kids from the desert, basically. And you get to Hamburg, and it's so isolating. Um, it's such an utterly different place. And as, as young people often do when they're away from home for the first time, they, they congregate in whatever social spaces they can. And in this case, it was the mosque. The Al-Quds Mosque, which just coincidentally turned out to be one of the most radical mosques in Europe. It's necessary to look at another worshiper at Al-Quds, an Islamist named Mohammed Haydar Zamar. He was a veteran of the Afghanistan Jihad who, quote, relished any opportunity to extol the virtues of violent jihad. The 9-11 Commission described him as, quote, an outspoken, flamboyant Islamist who was a well-known figure in the Muslim community. He had also caught the attention of American and German intelligence by the late 90s. Zamar was a large man with a thick beard and glasses who weighed almost 320 pounds. The German news magazine Der Spiegel reported that he would occasionally spend the night at 54 Marienstrasse and acted as, quote, a sort of surrogate father to the pilots surrounding Mohammed Atta. Originally from Aleppo, Syria, he came to Hamburg in 1971 when he was 10 years old. He dropped out of high school, but trained as a mechanic with Daimler, though he found himself unemployed shortly after. In 1982, the Washington Post reports that Zamar made his first attempt at participating in an armed conflict. He traveled to Jordan in order to sneak into Syria and join the armed wing of the Muslim Brotherhood, which at that time was trying to overthrow the ruling Assad family. By that point, the Brotherhood had been trying for the previous five years through assassinations, guerrilla warfare, and large-scale uprisings. 
Samar's attempt to enter the country might coincide with one of the most notorious episodes in the history of Syria and of the modern Middle East, the Hama Massacre. Between February 2nd and 28th, Syrian security forces led by President Hafez al-Assad's brother cracked down on insurgents and innocents alike in the city of Hama, population 400,000. Veteran journalist Robin Wright called it, quote, the single deadliest act by any Arab government against its own people in the modern Middle East. The Hama massacre started with a Muslim Brotherhood ambushing a Syrian army unit in Hama. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, quote, the conflict sparked a general uprising in the city, turning the night into one of killing and looting as hundreds of Islamic fighters raided regime leaders' homes and offices in a bid to seize control of the city. Rifat al-Assad sent 12,000 troops to Hama with orders to end the siege once and for all. For the next three weeks, Syrian tanks shelled the city, the Air Force bombed it, and armed soldiers went door-to-door, -door, killing indiscriminately. The number of casualties at Hama ranges from 20 to 40,000. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, quote, Rifat boasted about the number of casualties because he wanted to send a signal to Syrians that he would not tolerate any dissent. Zamar's plan to join the fight was foiled by Jordanian authorities, who turned him back at the border. He subsequently renounced his Syrian citizenship in March of 1982 and became a German citizen. His effort was not in vain. One of the people he met during this trip was Mohammed al-Bahaya. Why is he important? According to the Washington Post, quote, At Bahaya's invitation, he made his first visit to Afghanistan in 1991 to receive military training at one of the militant camps run by Bahaya. Over the next decade, Samar moved through the militant Islamist circuit, traveling regularly to Afghanistan volunteering for a stint with Al-Qaeda-affiliated militants in the war in Bosnia, and visiting London, where he befriended the Jordanian-Palestinian preacher Abu Qatada, a prominent figure long suspected by the United States of having links to Al-Qaeda. According to journalist Terry McDermott, Zamar also spent some time in Bosnia during the wars that ravaged the former Yugoslavia in the 90s. Back in Hamburg, one witness reported hearing Zamar pressure bin al-Sheib to fulfill his duty to wage jihad. In 1998, he encouraged them to participate in jihad and, quote, convinced them to go to Afghanistan. After 9-11, Zamar allegedly took credit for influencing the entire Hamburg group. However, his penchant for braggadocio and self-promotion may have been a problem. The president of a mosque he attended described him as a, quote, little boy in a big body who talked too much. A 2018 profile of Zamar in the Washington Post noted, quote, investigators of the 9-11 attacks remember him as talkative, perhaps too talkative to have been trusted with details of the plot. He still likes to talk, at length, about himself, about his part in persuading the 9-11 hijackers to travel to Afghanistan for military training, and about the litany of injustices he says the United States has committed against Muslims. He has denied having any advanced knowledge of the 9-11 attacks. One of the few relationships Mohammed Atta had outside of his roommates and the people he met at the mosque was with Dimar Mahule, his faculty advisor at school. He saw himself as a friend of the, of the Arab world. Um, his research, he was a, a city planning professor, and his research was all done in Aleppo, Syria. And he went back there every year uh, to do further research. Uh, so he, he thought that 
he saw himself as providing these students a gateway into Europe as a way to as a as a bridge to Europe. But but frankly, he didn't know Otto that well. I mean, at all. Otto turned in his 152-page master's thesis in the spring of 1999. According to McDermott's book, his academic advisor, quote, judged it to be of high quality intellectually, but uneven in its writing. He asked another professor to work with Atta on the thesis before it was formally submitted that August. When he did, he successfully defended it before a review committee. Atta would later receive his degree in the mail. One year after 9-11, Atta's former advisor told The Guardian, quote, I knew Muhammad Atta well, or rather, I knew a man who called himself Muhammad El-Amir, a pleasant, personable, and very intelligent young man. I taught him. He consulted me. We had long and detailed academic discussions. When I hear things about Muhammad Atta, I have this image in front of me of Muhammad El-Amir, but it is not easy to reconcile the two. Muhammad El-Amir was just not decipherable as the terror pilot Muhammad Atta. Zia Jaran and Isil Senguin were married in Hamburg in the spring of 1999. According to Terry McDermott, their marriage was as rocky as a relationship. They would frequently fight, break up, and get back together. At one point, she got pregnant and subsequently got an abortion because of the uncertainty of their relationship. Marwin Al-Shehi traveled to the United Arab Emirates that summer to marry a woman chosen by his family. Mohammed Atta returned to Cairo to visit his family in December of 1999. Upon his return, his father went about the process of trying to find his only son a suitable bride. They met with her family. She and Atta appeared to like each other. Her parents liked their prospective son-in-law, but there was one catch. They did not want her to leave Cairo. Muhammad Atta got engaged on the promise that he would return to Cairo and marry her after finishing his doctorate in the United States. At least that was what Atta told his parents, his future bride, and his future in-laws at the time. Based on what is known of him and his life story, it's highly likely that he never intended to honor the engagement much less go to the United States to pursue a doctorate, which could take as long as six years. By late 1999, Atta, Al-Shehi, Ben al and Jorah were ready to give up their academic studies for jihad. According to the 9-11 Commission, the four of them became the core of a group of radical Muslims in Hamburg, hosting three or four sessions a week at their apartment, which, quote, involved extremely anti-American discussions. On the notation for his rent checks to pay for the apartment, Muhammad Atta would write, quote, Dar al-Ansar, House of the Followers. This may be a homage or reference to the Beit al-Ansar, the safe house Osama bin Laden created in Peshawar, Pakistan in 1984, which later became the location for the founding of al-Qaeda in August and September of 1988. Four other radical Islamic extremists joined the group that would come to be known as the Hamburg Cell. They didn't participate in the 9-11 plot directly, but they did assist in several ways. Saeed Bahaji, a German citizen of Moroccan descent who lived with Atta and Ben al-Shib at 54 Marienstrasse for eight months, they used Bahaji's computer for internet research. Sakaria Esabar, also of Moroccan origin, moved to Germany two years earlier to study medical technology. After arriving in Hamburg, he met Ben al-Shib at a Turkish mosque and according to the 9-11 Commission, quote, turned extremist fairly suddenly, probably in 1999. His parents made several unsuccessful interventions to turn him away from extremism. 
Just before the 9-11 attacks, he traveled to Afghanistan to inform the Al-Qaeda leadership of the date for the attacks. Munir al-Mutasadek, also from Morocco, once praised Adolf Hitler, according to one of his roommates, and organized film sessions which included Osama bin Laden's speeches. According to the 9-11 Commission, he, quote, would help to conceal the Hamburg Group's trip to Afghanistan in late 1999. Abdel Ghani Mazoudi, also Moroccan, had a background in physics and chemistry, and had been living and studying in Germany for two years before arriving in Hamburg in 1995. He became a much more devoted Muslim while living in Germany. In April of 1996, he and Motasadeh, quote, witnessed the execution of Atta's will. The group becomes increasingly more secretive, speaking only in Arabic to conceal the subjects of their conversations. Towards the end of 1999, Atta, Al-Shehi, Ben Al-Shib, and Jarrah decide they want to go to Chechnya to fight against the Russians. Chechnya is a republic about the size of Connecticut, located in southeastern Russia. Its population is predominantly Muslim, but had been under Moscow's rule in some form or another for two centuries. In the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union at the end of 1991, Chechnya declared its independence, as many other Soviet republics did. However, President Boris Yeltsin, who allowed the dissolution of the Soviet Union, would not allow the secession of a state he viewed as part of Russia itself. A Chechen politician and former Soviet Air Force general overthrew the local communist government. The Russian Federation sent military forces to take back the country in December of 1994. After a bloody two-year conflict, the Russians and Chechens agreed to a ceasefire. Russian forces left in December of 1996, probably with a similar sense of humiliation with which they had withdrawn from Afghanistan seven years earlier. This was the end of the First Chechnya War. In August of 1999, Chechen militants invaded the neighboring Russian Republic of Dagestan in support of a local separatist movement. Shortly after, five bombs exploded in Russia over the course of 10 days, killing 300 people. At the time, it was the largest coordinated terror attack in Russian history, considered by some to be its equivalent of 9-11. Citing both the invasion of Dagestan and the threat of terrorism, the then-outgoing President Yeltsin sent Russian forces into Chechnya again, starting the Second Chechnya War. Popular opinion is largely supportive of the military campaign, not just to deal with the terrorist threat, but to undo the results of the last war a few years earlier. By February of 2000, the Russians had captured the capital city of Grozny. According to a Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty report, quote, After being targeted twice in less than a decade, Chechnya's capital was the most destroyed city on earth. The war in Chechnya contributed to the political rise of then Prime Minister Vladimir Putin, who took over as acting president of Russia following Yeltsin's resignation on December 31, 1999. More than two decades later, he remains in power, having recently signed a law that will extend his presidency to the year 2036. The Chechen conflict consists primarily of local separatists, although it has attracted Islamist militants from outside of the country in the same way Afghanistan did two decades earlier. The Islamist goal is the creation of an Islamic state independent of the Russian Federation. According to a 2003 State Department report, quote, at least three rebel factions, which consist of both Chechen and foreign, predominantly Arabic Mujahideen fighters, are connected to international Islamic terrorists and have used terrorist methods. 
Former Washington Post Moscow correspondent Peter Baker explains. What happens in uh, Chechnya in the 90s that makes it such a hotspot for jihadists? Well, Chechnya, of course, is this uh, majority Muslim uh, republic within Russia, within what was first Soviet and then, and then Russia. And when all of the other states of the Soviet empire break away, like Ukraine and the Baltics and, and Armenia and Georgia, Chechnya tried to break away from Mother Russia. Chechnya was not a, its own state like those uh, republics within the Soviet Union. Like it was Ukraine a, and so forth, right? Exactly. It wasn't. It's, but it, 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 so while Yeltsin, who was now the president of Russia, was willing to, to let Kazakhstan and, and Ukraine and all those go, he wasn't willing to let Chechnya go. It was, it was like, um, it's like Texas saying, I don't need to have uh, Louisiana and Oklahoma, but I'm not going to let Galveston go. And so Chechnya was part of Russia as far as Yeltsin was concerned. And when they tried to break away, he responded with, uh, you know, punishing force. And there was a two-year war in the mid-90s that uh, was really about separatism. It was really about a national identity more than it was a kind of religious cause. But over the years, it ultimately became a magnet for some of the jihadists, some of the the the, the more religious uh, elements of the Islamist, um, you know, uh, world out there. And you began to see people from the Arab world and elsewhere migrating to Chechnya to, to take up the fight against uh, the Russians as a proxy for their broader fight to, to establish a caliphate and to and to, to, to take on the infidels. So what had began, began as a nationalist struggle and a separatist struggle became more and more uh, of, a, of, a, of a religiously infused one. They weren't, the Chechens didn't even know anything about Islam in the traditional sense. I mean, most of them were very, you know, pretty secular, but it became more and more uh, about religion, more and more about Islam versus the, uh, the, the Christian uh, Russians and and uh, and therefore became a, a flashpoint in that broader struggle that Bin Laden represented. Right, and yeah, I don't know if you, I don't know if you knew this, but in I think late '99, the the Hamburg cell, you know, Mohammed Ada, Jarrah, Marwan Al Shehi, and Rasul Bin Al Sheib, they decide they want to go to to fight jihad and die in Chechnya. And yeah. they get told that it's too hard to get in right now. Just go to Afghanistan instead. And that's how they get alerted to the 9-11 plot. So, you know, what well, might Zark- have been? And, yeah, exactly. And Zarqawi, who is the number two of Al-Qaeda, tries to get into Chechnya, is arrested by the Russians. They have no idea who he is and eventually let him go. This is the conflict that Atta al-Shehi, bin al-Shib, and Jarrah want to fight and potentially die in. With the exception of al-Shehi, none of them had any military training. In late 1999, while traveling on a train in Germany, Ben Al-Shib and Al-Shehi were approached by a man named Khalid Al-Masri. They struck up a conversation about the Jihad in Chechnya. When they called Al-Masri to follow up after the trip to express interest in going there, he referred them to a man named Abu Musab, located in the city of Duisburg, located about 20 miles north of Dusseldorf. Remember the name Khalid Al-Masri for a future episode. According to the 9-11 Commission report, Abu Musab was an alias. His real name was Mohammed Du Oud Slahi and described him as, quote, a significant Al-Qaeda operative who, even then, was well known to U.S. and German intelligence. Although neither service knew he was in Germany at the time. Bin al-Shib and al-Shehi called him, 
and he invited them to Duisburg for a face-to-face meeting. So how did they wind up in Afghanistan instead of Chechnya? Terry McDermott explains. The answer they eventually came to, after literally years discussing this, was they were going to go to Afghanistan. and Well, actually, they were first they were going to go to Chechnya and fight the Russians on behalf of the Uma, of, of the Muslim nation. Uh, and they were told, well, you can't just go to Chechnya. I mean, they'll shoot you on site, probably. You'd never get there. And plus, you don't know how to fight anybody at all. So the thing to do is go to Afghanistan and be trained there, and then they'll they'll figure out a way to get you to Chechnya. So they weren't actually trying to attack the United States. They were going to Chechnya. Right. And they, they, and they happened, I mean, the most extraordinary coincidence, they happened to show up in Afghanistan, you know, only a week or two after bin Laden had okayed Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's plan for 9-11, and they were looking for pilots. This is another point in the story where history might have changed somewhat if different choices had been made. If the members of the Hamburg cell had pushed on and made it to Chechnya, they might have gotten themselves killed fighting against Russian special forces. But even if they didn't die in combat, this means they would not have gone on to Al-Qaeda training camps in Afghanistan in early 2000, which means they would not have been discovered in the screening process at that time and ultimately been chosen for the 9-11 plot. This does not necessarily mean that 9-11 wouldn't have happened. Remember, the fourth pilot, Hani Hanjour, was not part of the Hamburg cell and went to Afghanistan on his own and joined the 9-11 plot as it was already underway. But even if Atta al-Shehi, Jarrah, and bin al-Shib had not gone to Afghanistan, it is likely that sooner or later, other Muslims with aviation experience or who had lived in the West would have turned up in al-Qaeda training camps and been selected for the plot, the same way that Hani Hanjour was. It's also possible that the members of the Hamburg cell might have gone on to Afghanistan later on at some point after leaving Chechnya and still been chosen for 9-11 or another terrorist plot altogether. Regardless, either scenario would probably only have delayed the 9-11 attack, but it wouldn't have stopped it from happening. Back to the story, Slahi gave them instructions to get Pakistani visas for their passports, then how to get to Karachi, and finally to Quetta. Once in Quetta, they were supposed to contact a man at the Taliban's office. Atta and Jarrah left for Karachi during the final week of November of 1999. Al-Shehi went to Pakistan around the same time. Ben al-Shib left two weeks later. The four Moroccans stayed behind in Hamburg and covered for them during their travels to avoid suspicions. Ben al-Shib later said that he was taken to the Afghan city of Kandahar, where he met up with Atta and Jarrah, who by that point had already pledged their loyalty to Osama bin Laden. Al-Shehi had already taken the pledge and was on his way back to the United Arab Emirates to prepare for a mission. Ben al-Shib had a private meeting with bin Laden, accepted his offer to work for him, and pledged his loyalty. The 9-11 Commission noted, quote, By this time, Bin al-Shib claims he assumed he was volunteering for a martyrdom operation. Atta, Bin al-Shib, and Jarrah then met with Mohammed Atef, al-Qaeda's military commander and a member of the Shura Council, al-Qaeda's decision-making body. Atef told them they would be part of a highly secret mission and that they were to return to Germany to enroll in flight training. Atta, who was chosen to be the group leader by Bin Laden himself, met with the Al-Qaeda leader in private several times for additional instructions. This included going over a preliminary list of pre-approved targets that included the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the U.S. Capitol. 
The four men made their way back from Afghanistan through different paths. Marwan al-Shehi went back to the United Arab Emirates on his own, where he would obtain a new passport without any record of his travel to Pakistan and the U.S. tourist visa. Atta and bin al-Shib left Kandahar together and made a brief stop in Karachi. All of them met with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed before leaving Pakistan, where he instructed them on security and how to live in the United States based on his own experiences there as a college student. By March of 2000, all four were back in Hamburg. They changed their appearances. They wore Western clothing and shaved off their beards. They also changed their daily habits. They stopped interacting with known extremists like Mohammed Haider Zamar and attending extremist mosques. When Jarrah saw his wife Aisal Senguin again after he came back, she noticed that he was acting more like his old self when they first met. Upon returning, they began researching flight schools in Europe before reaching the conclusion that flight schools in the United States were less expensive and had shorter training periods. During the month of March of 2000, Mohammed Atta emailed 31 different flight schools in the United States, inquiring on behalf of a group of Arab men studying in Germany who wanted to learn how to fly. During these early months of the new millennium, all four of them got new passports to hide any record of their previous travel to Pakistan. With new passports in hand, they applied for U.S. visas, which were received by May of 2000. There was one problem, though. Ramzi bin al-Shib's application was rejected. He tried again three more times, all with the same result. According to the 9-11 Commission, bin al-Shib was, quote, a victim of the generalized suspicion that visa applicants from Yemen might join the ranks of undocumented aliens seeking work in the United States. This effectively ended his chances of participating in the 9-11 plot as a hijacker, though he would remain involved by providing the others with logistical and financial support. By June of 2000, Atta, al-Shehi, and Jarrah are all on U.S. soil. Between July and September, Atta and al-Shehi received training at flight schools in Florida. Jarrah enrolled in another program in Florida to get a multi-engine license and earned a single-engine pilot certification by August. In October, he flew back to Germany to visit his wife before returning to Florida a few weeks later. He kept in touch with her by phone and email while in the United States. But they weren't the only Al-Qaeda operatives in the country. By Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's own admission, he joined Al-Qaeda in late 1998 or early 1999, and Osama bin Laden approved what became known as the Plains Operation in March or April of 1999. According to the 9-11 Commission, bin Laden picked four people to serve as suicide operatives very early on in the 9-11 plot. Khalid al-Midar, Nawaf al-Hazmi, Walid bin Atash, and Abu Bara al-Yemeni. Al-Midar and al-Hazmi had already obtained U.S. visas after the death of their friend Azam, the suicide terrorist who drove the truck bomb to the American Embassy in Nairobi. He was covered in more death back in Episode 4. Al-Midar and al-Hazmi had previously traveled together as part of a group that went to fight in Bosnia back in 1995. By 1999, they had already been to Afghanistan several times. Bin Atash, also known by the alias Khalad, went to Yemen in early 1999 to help Abd al-Rahim al-Nashiri, the mastermind of the U.S.'s coal bombing, get explosives for the plot. While he was there, he also tried and failed to get a U.S. visa. He tried again under a different name, with a cover story that he was visiting a clinic to get a new prosthesis for his leg. 
Before he heard back from the clinic, he was arrested by Yemeni authorities in a case of mistaken identity. He had been driving the car of another conspirator in the ship bombing plot who was wanted by local authorities. The Natasha was released from custody in the summer of 1999, allegedly after pressure from his father and Osama bin Laden himself. By this point, he gave up on his efforts to get a U.S. visa and returned to Afghanistan. In the fall of 1999, Al-Midar, Al-Hazmi, Ben and Al-Yemeni were selected to attend an elite training course at Al-Qaeda's Mez Ainak camp, located at an abandoned Russian copper mine near Kabul. It opened after the United States destroyed the training camp at coast with cruise missiles during Operation Infinite Reach. This was discussed in greater detail back in Episode 4. According to the 9-11 Commission, the training course, quote, focused on physical fitness, firearms, close quarters combat, shooting from a motorcycle, and night operations. From this camp, they went to a guesthouse in Karachi run by KSM for another two weeks of training. Here, they learned how to read phone books, airline timetables, use the internet, use code words and communications, make travel reservations, and rent an apartment. Before continuing the story, recall that back in 1998, the FBI had discovered the phone number for Al-Qaeda's switchboard, which was run from a private telephone number in Yemen. The Bureau obtained this information after an agent interrogated Mohammed Alawali, the surviving suicide bomber of the Nairobi Embassy attack. The Bureau shared this phone number with the CIA so they could monitor it. This was covered in more detail back in Episode 4. During the years after the embassy bombings, American intelligence kept monitoring the switchboard. This helped them put together a picture of the extent of the Al-Qaeda network as it existed before 9-11. By monitoring the Yemen phone number, the National Security Agency and the CIA became aware in the fall of 1999 that operatives named Khalid, Nawaf, and Salem have plans to travel to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia to meet with other Al-Qaeda operatives. With the benefit of hindsight, we now know that the operatives mentioned in these intercepts are Khalid al-Midar and brothers Nawaf and Salem al-Hazmi. All three would later participate in the 9-11 attacks. At the time, according to the 9-11 Commission, NSA analysts correctly surmised that Salem was Nawaf's younger brother. Quote, Seeing links not only with al-Qaeda, but specifically with the 1998 embassy bombings, a CIA desk officer guessed that, quote, something more nefarious was afoot. According to Terry McDermott's book Perfect Soldiers, intelligence agents were able to track Al-Midar during his journey to Malaysia, where he arrived on January 5, 2000. When he transited through Dubai, a photocopy of his passport was obtained and later provided to the CIA. American intelligence also managed to identify Nawaf al-Hazmi. The CIA asked Malaysian Domestic Security Services to track two of the men. They were followed to a local hotel and a condo complex outside of the capital city. Unfortunately, the Malaysians were only able to do photographic surveillance. They didn't place microphones or recording devices in either location. If they had, they might have stumbled onto the 9-11 plot. They spent the next three days at the condo, which belonged to a top lieutenant of Hambali, the Indonesian leader of the Southeast terrorist organization Jamai Islamiyah. Not only was he Al-Qaeda's coordinator in the region, he was an old war buddy of KSM's going back to the Afghanistan Jihad. The men went on shopping trips in the city and used a swimming pool. According to Terry McDermott, quote, it was not until 10 months later that CAA analysts figured out who most of the men in the photos were. Not until Atash was identified after the fact 
as one of the operational commanders of the attack on the USS Cole in Aden. January 8, 2000, Malaysian surveillance teams report that three of the four Arabs have suddenly left Kuala Lumpur for Bangkok, Thailand. At the time, they were able to identify one as Al-Midar, one of his companions as Al-Hazmi, and the third with part of a name, Salasi. CIA officers in Bangkok did not get this information in time, and thus American intelligence lost their trail in Thailand. Before continuing with the story, it is necessary to ask what was the purpose of the meeting in Malaysia. In his memoir, former FBI agent Ali Sufan noted that two Al-Qaeda operatives in Yemen, Nibras and Kuso, agreed to take $36,000 in cash to Kalad in Southeast Asia, under the pretense that he was getting a new prosthesis. They flew to Bangkok and wound up spending a month there, and gave Kalad the money after he left Kuala Lumpur on January 8th. You'll recall that Nibras was one of the suicide bombers that would go on to attack the USS Cole later that year, and Kuso was an Al-Qaeda operative who was interrogated extensively by Sufan as part of the investigation. Their story was covered in more depth back in episode 4. Sufan asked the key question in his memoir, quote, Why, in the midst of planning an attack as big as the bombing of the USS The Sullivans, would Al-Qaeda transfer $36,000 out of Yemen? Kuso's explanation that the money was for a new prosthesis for Khalad seemed highly unlikely. It usually didn't cost more than $2,000. Sufan speculates that the real purpose of these funds was to finance Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi's roles in the 9-11 plot. Sufan got this information during his interrogation of Kuso and sent it to an FBI colleague in Bangkok. He asked his Bangkok counterpart to check out the hotel where Kuso and Nibras had been staying. They found a series of incoming calls from Kuso in Aden, another number in Sanaa, and a payphone in Kuala Lumpur. Between November of 2000 and July of 2001, Sufan says the FBI sent the CIA three separate official requests for information about Kalad, the Malaysia meeting, and the payphone in Kuala Lumpur. The Bureau never received any information on this matter before 9-11. Sufan also notes in his memoir that after the $36,000 in cash was delivered to Kalad, Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi bought first-class tickets to travel from Bangkok to Los Angeles on January 15, 2000. On that day, Nawaf Al-Hazmi and Khalid Al-Midar arrived at Los Angeles International Airport. Back in Episode 4, both of them successfully applied for visas at the U.S. Consulate in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, back in April of 1999. When they got off the plane at LAX, they became the first of the 19-9-11 hijackers to set foot on American soil. February 1st, 2000. Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi encounter a Saudi named Omar Al-Bayoumi at a halal restaurant in the Culvert City area of Los Angeles, a few blocks away from the King Fahd Mosque. According to the 9-11 Commission, Bayoumi, who lived in San Diego, was in Los Angeles that day dealing with a visa issue and running an errand at the local Saudi consulate. He was in the United States as a business student, supported by a private contractor for the Saudi Civil Aviation Authority. Bayoumi, who was 42 years old at the time, had worked for the Aviation Authority for more than 20 years at that point. There is reason to be skeptical of this story. A recently declassified FBI document shows that the Bureau suspected Bayoumi of being a Saudi intelligence officer and that witnesses at Dala Avco, the company where he was supposedly working, described him as a, quote, ghost employee, 
one of approximately 50 such individuals being paid at the company who did not show up for work. One witness reported Bayumi accrued such outrageous expenses at one point that Avco refused to pay him. He was involved in providing, quote, translation, travel assistance, lodging, and financing to Almidar and Al-Hazmi. The document also notes, quote, Anomalous transfers within Bayumi's bank accounts coincide with transactions wherein Bayumi provides assistance to Hazmi and Midar. The document cites a redacted source who describes Bayumi as, quote, a Saudi citizen treated with great respect inside the Saudi consulate, well regarded by consul personnel who held a very high status when he entered the building. The same source also added that Bayumi's status, quote, was higher than many of the Saudi persons in charge of the consulate. Former FBI agent Mark Rossini accused Bayoumi of lying when he was interviewed during post-9-11 investigations. There's so much there. Omar Bayoumi, this known Saudi agent who just happens, he lied, to bump into them in California and take him to his home? No. We have a witness who actually drove Al Bayoumi to Culver City, California, to the specific restaurant where he was to have met them, where the two hijackers knew to go because they were given their instructions when they were in Malaysia as to when they got to LA, go to this restaurant and this man will be waiting for you. Okay? So it's not, it was a total lie. Al-Bayoumi lied when he was interviewed finally in Saudi Arabia. What are the consequences? Nothing. Nothing. The recently declassified evidence raises eyebrows but it is not enough to conclusively prove that Bayoumi was a Saudi intelligence officer. In September of 2021, President Joe Biden signed an executive order directing the Department of Justice and other government agencies to undertake a declassification review of documents relating to the FBI's 9-11 investigation. The declassification and publication of these documents could benefit the families of 859-11 victims and 1,500 9-11 survivors who are suing the Saudi government. The lawsuit, which was filed in a Manhattan federal court back in March of 2017, accuses the Saudi government of providing material and financial assistance to Al-Qaeda during the years leading up to 9-11. President Biden's executive order lays out specific timelines for the release of documents over a period of six months. Some information in U.S. government archives would remain classified if its disclosure might pose a national security risk. If more evidence comes to light in what are already heavily redacted documents, this angle of the story will have to be reassessed in the future by journalists and historians. Back to the story, Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar's objective during their stay in the United States was to take lessons to learn how to fly a plane. There were two problems though. They spoke little, if any, English, and they'd never been exposed to life in the West, unlike their Hamburg counterparts. They were not ready or capable of taking on an extended mission in the United States. According to the 9-11 Commission, quote, their only qualifications for this plot were their devotion to Osama bin Laden, their veteran service, and their ability to get valid U.S. visas. In March of 2000, information came from Bangkok identifying Nawaf al-Hazmi by his full name, and more importantly, that he had flown to Los Angeles on January 15th on a United Airlines flight. According to the 9-11 Commission, this tantalizing tip was not shared outside of the CIA's counterterrorist center. Quote, the CIA did not try to register Midar or Hazmi with the State Department's tip-off watch list, despite the fact they found out both men had U.S. visas and that Hazmi had flown to Los Angeles. 
Even more mind-boggling is the fact that none of this information about Hazmi or Midar was shared with the FBI, which has jurisdiction for domestic law enforcement and security operations. The 9-11 Commission concluded that the CIA, FBI, or both had opportunities to refocus their respective investigations on al-Hazmi and al-Midar on four occasions in 2001. According to former FBI agent Mark Rossini, who was assigned to Alex Station, there was at least one attempt by another FBI agent, also at Alex Station, to pass this information back to colleagues at the Bureau through official channels. His effort was blocked by an intelligence official. This is Rossini's account of what happened. I didn't fall through the cracks because you willfully, purposefully denied it going because there's an instant message from you to somebody else, that individual, told who told me that Doug's memo wasn't going to go. And who also told Doug his memo wasn't going to go. So that didn't fall through the cracks. You purposely made it not go. And no one's ever answered that. Why? So I've been trying for the last 20 years to figure out why Doug's memo didn't go. Is there a paper trail for any list or not that might, you know. Yeah, it's a paper trail. Like I said, Doug writes his draft CIR. It goes in the electronic queue to me and then person A, then to person B, C, D, F. How many people sign off me? on it? What? How many people are supposed to sign off on it? Do you remember? Well, at, you know, normally about four to five people, but then as people, as people read it, they are free to say, hey, you know, I think my friend over in Citizens Group needs to read this as well. They should be in the loop as well, just to chop off on it. So after sitting in Doug's queue for a few days, he comes up to this other person's queue who I sent it to. Comes, I go to that person and said, hey, what's going on with Doug's cable? <clears throat> Simultaneous to that is when Doug sent an instant message to the individual testified behind the curtain, is this a no-go or should I reword it a different way? And the reason why Doug wrote that to the individual who testified behind the curtain on 9-11 is because frequently maybe you might put something in the CIR that might reveal a source or method, so therefore you have to reword it to maybe block out any potential that some of the reading go, oh, oh, that's how they learned about that, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's understandable. That's that's normal. That's understandable, right? Right, but anybody with a half a brain can realize when you read anything, they must have learned it by this particular way, right? Mm -hmm. But anyway, that individual, rather than instant messaging back Doug, email instant messages back the person to whom I went up and gotten to go speak to. And that person had already just sent an instant message over to Doug saying, please hold off for now per deputy chief, meaning deputy chief Alex Station. So it didn't fall through the cracks. You had a CIR drafted by an FBI agent, duly assigned to the CIA, who wished to inform the FBI that there were two hijackers that were surveilled in a meeting in Malaysia. One of them followed all the way from Yemen and both of these guys now are known, two guys at the meeting were now known to have visas to come to the U.S. Can you get any more plain than that, that there's something the FBI should know about? That was done in direct violation of Executive Order 12333, signed by Ronald Reagan back in 1981, 
that says the intelligence community must share with the FBI information about about terrorism that impacts the homeland, if you will, domestically. And they didn't do it. According to a CIA Inspector General report, between January and March of 2000, an estimated 50 to 60 people read one or more of six CIA cables containing travel information about Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi. The cables were sent from four field locations and headquarters and were read by officers overseas, by headquarters personnel, operations officers and analysts, managers and junior employees, as well as officers on rotation from the NSA and the FBI. Quote, Over an 18-month period, some of these officers had opportunities to review the information on multiple occasions, when they might have recognized its significance and shared it appropriately with other components and agencies. Ultimately, the two terrorists were watchlisted in late August 2001 as a result of questions raised in May 2001 by a CAA officer on assignment at the FBI. Some former government officials have publicly speculated in other media interviews that the CIA didn't notify the FBI or other agencies about Al-Midar or Al-Hazmi because they had hopes of flipping them, possibly with Bayoumi acting as an intermediary. The idea, according to this theory, was that the agency would recruit them as informants while they were in the United States. The CIA declined to comment on these allegations, and there is no evidence to support this theory in the public record. Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi spent two weeks in Los Angeles, where they received assistance from the local Muslim community at the King Fahd Mosque in Culver City, before moving south to San Diego in early February. They lived openly in the city under their real names, and Al-Hazmi was even listed in the local telephone directory. One potential contact in San Diego for the future hijackers was Anwar al-Awlaki, an imam at the Rabat Mosque. Born in New Mexico and raised in Yemen, Al-Awlaki told the 9-11 Commission he met with Al-Hazmi several times and identified his picture. He eventually moved to Virginia in early 2001. Al-Hazmi's appearance at that mosque in Virginia, quote, may not have been coincidental. Though Al-Awlaki is a peripheral figure in the overall 9-11 plot, it is necessary to note that he would play a major role in Al-Qaeda in the future, which will be covered in an upcoming episode. By amazing coincidence or sheer dumb luck, the San Diego housemate who rented a room to Almidar and Al-Hazmi is described by the 9-11 Commission as, quote, an apparently law-abiding citizen with long-standing friendly contacts among local police and FBI personnel. He did not see anything unusual enough in the behavior of Hazmi or Midar to prompt him to report to his law enforcement contacts, nor did those contacts ask him for information about his tenants slash housemates. All Hazmi and Al-Midar's efforts to learn to fly aircraft did not go well. Their poor English became an insurmountable barrier. An Arabic-speaking pilot they spoke with at one school said their training would begin on small planes. Hazmi and Midar responded saying they wanted to learn to fly Boeing jets and asked where they could enroll. The pilot, quote, convinced that the two were either joking or dreaming, according to the 9-11 Commission, told them no such flight school existed. Other instructors who worked with them said they were poor students who were only interested in controlling the aircraft in flight, but not in taking off or landing. By the end of May, the two had given up on learning how to fly. Al-Midar left San Diego on June 9th, 2000 and returned to the United States a month later. Al-Hazmi remained in San Diego for the rest of the year. On December 8th, a 29-year-old Saudi named Hani Hanjour arrived in San Diego, having flown in from Dubai via Paris and Cincinnati. Evidence indicates that both men left for Arizona, 
By this point, they were not the only 9-11 hijackers in the country. If the agency had done what it was supposed to and notified the State Department to put Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi on its watch list, they could have blocked Al-Midar from re-entering the country in July of 2001. If the agency had done what it was supposed to and notified the FBI that two Al-Qaeda terrorists were on American soil, the Bureau might have been able to track them down in California in early 2000 and put them under surveillance. The CIA Inspector General report notes, quote, Surveillance, in turn, would have had the potential to yield information on flight training, financing, and links to others who were complicit in the 9-11 attacks. Looking back on it with the benefit of two decades of hindsight, the failure to share this crucial information with the FBI and State Department will be remembered as one of the biggest intelligence blunders in history. December 8, 2000. Hani Hanjour, the fourth pilot in the 9-11 plot, arrives in San Diego, California. He was a Saudi who went to Afghanistan as a teenager in the late 80s to participate in the Jihad. However, because the Soviets had already withdrawn by this point, he wound up working at a relief agency. He first came to the United States in 1991 to study English at the University of Arizona. Five years later, he returned to the United States to pursue flight training after having been rejected from a Saudi flight school. He checked out several schools before returning to Saudi Arabia. In 1997, he went back to Arizona with two friends, where his flight training began in earnest. Within three months, he got his private pilot's license. After several months of additional training, he earned his commercial pilot certificate from the FAA in April of 1999. The 9-11 Commission report noted that a number of Al-Qaeda figures attended the University of Arizona in Tucson, or lived in Tucson during the 80s and early 90s. Hanjour associated with several people with extremist beliefs who had been the subject of counterterrorism investigations. Quote, Some of them trained with Hanjour to be pilots. Others had apparent connections to Al-Qaeda, including training in Afghanistan. By the spring of 2000, Hanjour was back in Afghanistan. According to 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Hanjour was sent to him in Karachi to participate in the 9-11 plot after his background as a trained pilot was discovered at an Al-Qaeda camp. KSM trained him for several days in the use of code words. Hanjour returned to Saudi Arabia on June 20th and obtained a U.S. student visa on September 25th. He traveled to Dubai to meet with facilitator Ali Abdulaziz Ali, who opened a bank account on his behalf with the initial funds for his journey to the United States. After Hanjour's arrival from Dubai via Paris and Cincinnati, Ohio, Nawaf al-Hazmi tells his housemate that he and his friend Hani Hanjour were going to San Jose, California to take flying lessons and that he would remain in touch. They settled in Mesa, Arizona, where Hanjour began a refresher training course at his former flight school. He wanted to train on multi-engine planes, but had difficulties because of his limited understanding of English. By early 2001, Hanjour begins training on a Boeing 737 simulator and completes the training by the end of March. By April 4th, Nawaf al-Hazmi and Hanjour have packed up their apartment in Mesa and moved to Falls Church, Virginia, a suburb of Washington, D.C. Four pilots, no matter how fanatical they were about the cause, would not be enough to execute the plot. 
During the summer and fall of 2000, Osama bin Laden and senior Al-Qaeda leaders began selecting what the 9-11 Commission calls the muscle hijackers, who would storm the cockpits and keep the passengers under control. The Commission notes the somewhat misleading nature of the label, pointing out that most of the hijackers were between 5 feet 5 and 5 feet 7 inches tall. There would be 19 hijackers on four separate flights on 9-11. Four of them would be the pilots who would take control of each aircraft. The other 15 would serve as muscle hijackers. 15 of the 19 were from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, 14 muscle hijackers and one pilot, a fact that caused a political and public relations nightmare for the ruling royal family after the attacks. According to the 9-11 Commission, quote, Like many other Al-Qaeda operatives, the Saudis who eventually became the muscle hijackers were targeted for recruitment outside Afghanistan, probably in Saudi Arabia itself. Al-Qaeda recruiters, certain clerics, and in a few cases family members probably all played a role in spotting potential candidates. Several of the muscle hijackers seem to have been recruited through contacts at local universities and mosques. The commission notes that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed said the reason so many Saudis were chosen was a matter of practicality. They formed the vast majority of recruits in Al-Qaeda training camps, as high as 70%. There is one other possible factor to keep in mind. Before 9-11, it was easier for Saudis to obtain visas and travel to the United States. Recall that Ramzi bin Al-Sheib and Walid bin Atash, both from Yemen, had their U.S. visa applications turned down. The 9-11 Commission notes that most of the muscle hijackers underwent basic training like other Al-Qaeda recruits would. The training would include firearms, heavy weapons, explosives, and topography. At least seven of the hijackers went through the Al-Farouk camp near Kandahar, possibly because of the camp's proximity to Osama bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda leadership. According to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, bin Laden and Mohammed Atef chose all the muscle hijackers for the planes operation between the summer of 2000 and April of 2001. After a candidate was chosen, bin Laden would ask him to swear loyalty for a suicide operation. He would then be sent to meet with KSM for training and to film his martyrdom video. KSM briefed the muscle hijackers on how to acquire new, clean passports so they could apply for a U.S. visa. He also gave them $2,000 each and told them to return to Afghanistan after getting the visas. The majority of the Saudi muscle hijackers obtained their visas in Jeddah or Riyadh between September and November of 2000. When the hijackers returned to Afghanistan in late 2000 or early 2001, they received advanced training from Abu Mutab al-Jordani, one of the few Al-Qaeda operatives who knew the full extent of the operation. Al-Jordani trained them in how to hijack the plane, how to disarm air marshals, and how to handle explosives. He also trained them in bodybuilding and taught them a few English words and phrases. The hijackers butchered a sheep and a camel as preparation for using their knives during the hijackings. According to the 9-11 Commission report, quote, the recruits learned to focus on storming the cockpit at the earliest opportunity when the doors first opened and to worry about seizing control over the rest of the plane later. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed said the individual hijackers did not know the full details of the plane's operation before they went to the United States. Once their training in Afghanistan was complete, the hijackers were sent to a safe house in Karachi, Pakistan that was maintained by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. They would come in groups of two or three and stay there for as long as two weeks before making their way to the United States through the United Arab Emirates. 
Before leaving Pakistan, KSM gave each man $10,000 for expenses. Saudi authorities who interviewed the hijackers' relatives after the attacks found that they were between 20 and 28 years old, were unemployed, and were mostly unmarried. Some had enrolled in college, but none of them had completed a degree. Others didn't have much more than a high school education. Most of them became radicalized during the two or three years before the 9-11 attacks. Two of them went to Chechnya to fight against the Russian forces in that country. Others tried to, weren't able to get in, and went to Afghanistan instead. Terry McDermott, a former reporter for the Los Angeles Times, investigated the 19 hijackers extensively for his newspaper and later wrote a book about them called Perfect Soldiers. This is what he had to say about the muscle hijackers. Well, recruited, they weren't recruited specifically for this. No, but they were sent to, you know, Afghanistan. They were radicalized in Saudi Arabia. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, Um, Many of them, their families, I mean, one of them, the the father suggested he go to Afghanistan. It's kind of like the, you know, when I was a kid, you know, my dad thought it, it would make me into a man if I went and joined the army. Of the other four hijackers, two were from the United Arab Emirates and the others were from Egypt and Lebanon. Osama bin Laden, with assistance from Mohammed Atef, personally chose the muscle hijackers for the 9-11 plot between the summer of 2000 and April of 2001. According to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the original plan was to use as many as 25 or 26 hijackers, but for a variety of reasons, they settled on 19. He told Al Jazeera journalist Yazri Fauda, quote, We were never short of potential martyrs. Indeed, we have a department called the Department of Martyrs. We have scores of volunteers. Our problem at the time was to select suitable people who were familiar with the West. Here's journalist Terry McDermott. My, my takeaway from characterizing these people is that they were, they were ordinary people, ordinary young men. I, I, I don't think they were exceptional in any regard, which I find scary as hell. Right. It'd, it'd be too easy to make them out to be Satan, right? Yeah, they're, they're not. They're not. Uh, I remember the first, the first interview I did for the for publicity for Perfect Soldiers, the book, was with Bill O'Reilly. Like, what a way to start your day, right? Um, and, and it's and this is his uh, this is his question. He says, like, this is like after introducing me in the book. He says, so. They were evil, right? You know, and, you know, I, I suppose it would be comforting if that were true. Yeah, in, it would. In some way. I mean, I read, were, I, I read a two-volume. Right. I read a two-volume biography of Hitler. I mean, it's kind of the same kind of the same sort of feeling. I mean, it'd be easy to, to say he was evil or he was Lucifer or, yeah. you know, something. But no, he was just a... Uh, a, a, a guy, a loudmouth with political ambitions, but really no sort of, he basically sort of failed his way upward in life yeah. and look where it got him. So, I mean, yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think it's, you know, it, it's almost, it's almost scarier to understand that these are real people with real backgrounds and real hopes and dreams at one point, I guess. Yeah. I don't I mean, think it's almost scary. It's, 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 very scarier. Yeah. Uh, there are many more ordinary men than there are evil men. The ordinary men do evil things all the time. I started out like everybody else thinking these people, I mean, how could they do this? Right. And, to, and to find out that, that 
they weren't any different than anybody else. There's a million, many million more people just like them. According to political scientist Robert Pape, these are the demographics of Al-Qaeda suicide attackers from 1995 to 2003, as reported in his book Dying to Win, The Strategic Logic of Suicide Terrorism. This data includes the 9-11 hijackers. Al-Qaeda carried out 71 suicide attacks between 1995 and 2003. The nationalities are known for 67 out of the 71 terrorists. 34 were from Saudi Arabia, 12 were from Morocco, 4 were from Turkey. There were 3 each from Afghanistan, Indonesia, and Yemen. The rest were from Tunisia, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, Lebanon, and Pakistan. 66 out of 67 were citizens of Sunni-majority countries. None of them were women. Their average age was 26.7 years. 43 suicide attackers were in Sunni countries with an American military presence, compared to just 24 in other Sunni countries without American troops present. Four countries account for 19 of the 24 suicide terrorists that originated from countries without U.S. military presence. All four countries are governed by regimes with backing from the United States. None of the 71 suicide attackers came from any of the six countries designated as state sponsors of terrorism by the State Department. 54% of Arab suicide attackers had at least some post-secondary education. 76% of Arab suicide attackers had working or middle-class jobs. Asked to comment on Robert Pape's findings, here's Colin Clark, Director of Policy and Research at the Sufan Center. Nothing, nothing surprises me about that, but you know, I study this for a living. So I know a lot of the people that we're talking about, um, you know, the fact that these people didn't come from countries that were listed as state sponsors of terrorism, not altogether surprising. You know, that's a state-backed uh, issue, and it's also quite political if we look at who ends up on that list and who doesn't. Um, the fact that these individuals were educated, not surprising. And if you've ever read Diego Gambetta's book, Engineering Jihad, um, you know, he talks about uh, how individuals in particular with engineering backgrounds in the Middle East, highly educated. Um, and, uh, you know, unless you're connected to the patronage system of the regime, you're not going to find employment. And so, you know, in these highly sclerotic, uh, you know, rentier states that pushes people to, in some cases, adopt extreme ideologies. So none of these things surprise me, really. Uh, and the fact that uh, people came from regimes or states where the regime was friendly with the United States, that, that plays in to the, the near enemy debate, right? That part of the reason why we should be attacking the West is because the U.S. props up these apostate regimes, the Mubaraks of the world, you know, uh, the, the Saudis and others. So yeah, I mean, that, that, that squares with, with you know, my understanding of a lot of the way Al-Qaeda motivates individuals and deploys them. Uh, it appears that there were uh, three sets of brothers or relatives, at least people with the same surname. Uh, there were three sets of them, all Saudis, among the 9-11 hijackers. Uh, any opinion or conclusions that we can draw from that? We know terrorism can be a family affair. Uh, and we've seen that, in fact, at the Sufan Center, we put out a paper recently looking at the evolution of jihad in Southeast Asia. And we found uh, a number of uh, suicide attacks that were attributed to family members. 
not only siblings, but also parents that, that brought their kids along on suicide missions. So, um, you know, not, nothing necessarily surprising. I think it squares with my understanding of uh, certain themes from the literature. By July of 2001, all 19 hijackers are in the United States. That's it for this episode of Zero Hour. If you want to learn more, go to the website zerohourpod.com, where I've included a list of articles, documents, and links that I've used in my research. The next episode will look at the warning signs the U.S. government missed during the weeks and months leading up to 9-11. It will look at the administration of the recently sworn in George W. Bush. What did they know and do about Al-Qaeda during the eight months they were in office before the attacks? The episode will also include a conversation with a CIA analyst who wrote one of the most famous intelligence reports in American history. Last but not least, the episode will cover the final preparations by the hijackers leading up to that fateful morning. I'm David DeSola. Thank you for listening.